Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. We have a great show for you today, including a story about how an 85-foot deep cave in northern Wyoming perfectly preserves animals that fell into it thousands of years ago. Come on, honey. Come on, girl. It's hard when they're to draw blood when they're feisty. And hear how the University of Wyoming is under investigation for its handling of sexual assault after a survivor filed a complaint with the Department of Education. You know, you slip through the cracks kind of thing, and we're sorry. Last year's brutal winter killed all the mule deer fawns, radio collared from the Wyoming range herd. So this summer, scientists started over. And how Jackson hopes to handle the solar eclipse crowds. Those stories and more coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. On July 6th, the University of Wyoming came under federal investigation for its handling of reports of sexual violence made last year. The student who filed the complaint with the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights says she came forward with the hope of strengthening the university's policies and procedures. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter Tennessee Watson has more. The UW student who filed the report says for now she wants to remain anonymous and asked to be called Hope for this story instead of using her real name. Hope says she's worried speaking out might impact her ability to get a job here in Laramie. But she says those concerns were overshadowed by her desire to help. I want the system to be better. I want it to work for students the way it should and where it could, like live up to its fullest potential. Hope says she was sexually assaulted in April of 2016. Several days after the incident, she went to a faculty member she trusted. The professor promptly figured out that he was obligated to share what he knew with the university's Title IX office. Title IX refers to the federal act that covers pretty much anything related to gender discrimination at federally funded educational institutions. That includes everything from making sure men's and women's sports teams are equally funded to handling sexual assault cases. So in July of 2016, a little less than three months after disclosing the assault, Hope was contacted by the Title IX office, and she assumed it was about the report. Turns out it was about an unrelated matter, but she took it upon herself to bring up the case. They apologized in that meeting. You know, you slip through the cracks kind of thing, and we're sorry. Jim Osborne, the Title IX coordinator and the manager of investigations at UW, can't speak to the specifics of Hope's complaint, but he says typically the university responds to reports in 72 hours. Usually, you know, a delay if somebody reports something to a faculty member, um, it's it's usually a matter of a day or two that, that there's a delay getting the information to my office. When the investigation finally began in mid-July of 2016, Hope said it was handled respectfully, but it took longer than the recommended 60 days, and questions about why her report initially fell through the cracks remain. In the midst of the investigation into Hope's allegations, another report came in about the same perpetrator, from a woman Hope says she'd never met. The results of the Title IX office's investigation of the two cases found enough evidence to believe the accused was responsible for sexual misconduct. The next step in the process was for the dean of students to arrange for a hearing, where a hearing officer reviews the evidence and makes a final determination of responsibility. I asked Hope to read me a portion of the hearing officer's statement. It is highly clear to the hearing officer 
that the respondent must understand and acknowledge that numerous women feel he pushes boundaries in the very least and at most has committed a crime against them. He was asked to modify his behavior, but was not officially disciplined. Hope wanted him to at least be required to get counseling for his boundary issues, so she appealed the decision. During the appeal process, another issue emerged. Nicole Courtney, the assistant dean of students, says students can have the support person of their choosing, and that may be a faculty member or a supervisor. A lawyer, if they choose, it may be someone they trust very much. But Hope was told that the advocate she'd worked with for the last seven months now posed a conflict of interest, and she would have to select a new one. Alicia Selfridge with The Safe Project works to support UW students who are survivors of sexual violence. She says consistent support is critical because the process is filled with a lot of uncertainty. I think the survivor like thinks about is how is this going to affect me? How am I going to get anything out of this? Is this even worth it? Selfridge thinks the University of Wyoming actually does a lot to support students emotionally compared to other schools. But for Hope, all the disruptions in her case undermined that sense of support. Hope wanted to make sure other survivors at UW wouldn't have the same experience. So she consciously decided not to pursue a civil suit against the university and instead pursued a Title IX complaint. You know, I may not personally see instant relief that I may have seen if I were to pursue a civil suit, but I'm glad that I've gone this direction um, because I think this is right for this case. Um, I think it's right for me. And I just, I want the university to do better. According to the Office for Civil Rights website, it evaluates all complaints that are received, but only those that actually address Title IX violations are investigated. There are 246 schools currently under investigation for Title IX violations for sexual assault in Wyoming, Laramie County Community College, Northwest Community College, and the University of Wyoming are all on that list. For now, Hope wants to focus on getting her degree and let the Title IX complaint run its course. The Office for Civil Rights has 180 days to complete their investigation. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson. Education reporter Tennessee Watson will continue to follow the Title IX investigation as it unfolds. Now turning to examine another kind of policies. In 2012, Wyoming set some of the strongest emission limits on oil and gas companies in the country. Guidelines in the upper Green River Basin require companies there to restrict pollutants that may lead to ozone, a dangerous greenhouse gas. With several other states following suit, the Environmental Protection Agency is now on the verge of enforcing similar rules nationally. Wyoming Public Radio's Cooper McKim reports how the upper green can act as a model for both the state and the country. So we are on the Pinedale and Decline. And we're standing right now on Ultra's Riverside 9-2 pad. That's Erica Tokars with Ultra Petroleum. She's at the center of a dusty, wide gas field overlooking the Wind River Range. Across the road, men in hard hats and sunglasses crisscross the plot of land with a massive tower at its center, working to drill a hole for natural gas. Ultra is one of the major energy companies in the Upper Green River Basin near Pinedale. They use several technologies to help keep emissions down. One is the FLIR camera. It uses infrared vision to detect otherwise invisible leaks. There's also SCR tanks that remove nitrogen oxide, a dangerous pollutant that leads to ozone. And that's what we were hearing over there. These technologies are just a few that help keep Ultra in compliance with the region's emission standards. 
The Upper Green River Basin in southwestern Wyoming is one of the few areas in the country with strict guidelines on limiting pollutants from energy companies. It wasn't easy to arrive at this point. It took years of dangerously high ozone, a pale brown smog, to finally make a change. Ozone that caused coughing, nosebleeds, and chest pain among the locals. Dave Hole has lived in Pinedale for 15 years. He says the mountainside community used to be known for its clean, fresh air, and suddenly that went away. Everything from doctors in Jackson not allowing newborns to come back to Pinedale because of the air quality, to kids not being able to go outside for recess. In 2011, the Upper Green saw more ozone than major cities like Los Angeles. It turns out the basin's conditions are perfect for winter ozone formation, with reflective snow, sunlight, and nearby energy development. With a push from the community and local organizations, the Environmental Protection Agency designated the Upper Green outside of compliance with federal air quality limits. This pushed Wyoming's Department of Environmental Quality, DEQ, to come up with a plan to reduce the area's ozone levels. The state put together a 28-person task force made up of industry members, locals, and environmental groups to discuss how to do it. This is a group effort. It's not something that the department can do on its own. The citizens can't do it on its own, and industry can't do it on its own. That's Nancy Veer, head of the Air Quality Division at the DEQ. Within a year, the department began adopting a number of recommendations to reduce ozone. They were integrated into updated permitting guidelines for new or modified oil and gas wells, a rule to limit pollution at existing wells, and incentives to voluntarily reduce emissions. Veer says the changes worked. So in three years, Wyoming had decreased from a non-attainment area to an attainment, and that was through emission reductions. In other words, ozone levels were back to safe levels. Veer attributes success to good communication among citizens, industry, and environmental groups. An ultra-official explains following these guidelines is just best practice. Elsewhere in the country, industry says similar regulations nationwide could boost energy prices, stifling growth, considering the restrictions federal overreach. Supporters of reductions argue initial costs will be paid off in the long term, by keeping products in the pipelines. To be clear, the upper green standards are unique. Only a small handful of states place similar rules around energy production. While progress has been made, many including Upper Green River Alliance's Linda Baker say there's still work to be done, noting that ozone levels spiked again this winter, exceeding safe limits. Baker says restrictions still need to be tighter if the community wants clean air. Say, no net gains in emissions, somehow. A slower pace of development, fewer number of wells per year, is really the only way that I can see for keeping our air clean. Baker says she's particularly worried about a new natural gas project that may install 3,500 new wells in the area. Still, the positive results in the Upper Green have gotten the attention of others in the state. Wayne Lack says there's a desire to have similar rules in eastern Wyoming. These standards that they had uh, in Sublette County need to be expanded to the whole state because they're really kind of like the canary in the coal mine of what things could be. And this, the amount of wells that are uh, approved or waiting approval in areas like Laramie County is in the thousands. There are rules on the federal level that would mandate similar guidelines for oil and gas development across the country. But they've been the subject of legal ping pong in Washington. In place, and then on hold, and now in place again. Just this week, a court ruled the EPA will need to begin enforcement. For now, companies nationwide will begin compliance with the regulations. Regulations that look very much like what's going on in Wyoming's Upper Green River Basin. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Cooper McKim.
Next on the show, we'll tag along as scientists' radio caller mule deer fawns and hear the problem of recycling at state parks. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Life isn't easy for the Wyoming Range mule deer herd. Some of them make the world's longest mule deer migration over rugged mountains. Along the way, they struggle with disease, predators, and energy development. But last winter's record-breaking snowpack was downright brutal. Every single fawn, radio collar from the herd last year, died. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports. If you want to catch mule deer fawns, you've got to get up pretty early in the morning. It's 5 a.m. when University of Wyoming research scientist Samantha Dwinell gets on her computer. She checks signals emitted from a radio-colored pregnant doe that show she's been hunkering down in one spot. Oh, man, that's beautiful. <laughs> there that's we go. exactly what we're looking for. The doe's been there all night, and that means she probably gave birth. Dwinell and her crew quick pack up their gear and jump into the truck to go find the doe, and hopefully her fawns. Deer almost always give birth to twins, and they want to put radio colors on both of them. Last year at this time, most of the fawns were already born. But things are different this time. Dwinell says ultrasounds show that fawns haven't grown as big as they should have. We had, you know, the harsh winter. We saw sort of a depressed fetal development, and we weren't quite sure what that means, and so far, what it what it appears to be meaning is that everything is delayed. So they're so. being born and they're healthy, but it's just later. Yeah, exactly. Last year's fawns, though, aren't around anymore. When their moms couldn't dig down through the snow that piled up to 175% of normal, many fawns died of malnutrition. Wyoming Game and Fish Department's Gary Fralick sits next to me in the backseat of the truck. He says this herd has been losing numbers for a while now, and it was another bad winter in the early 90s that started their slide. He says back then, Game and Fish tried to keep the herd size at around 38,000, but when it rose higher, the agency dished out more hunting licenses. During those two years, a fairly liberal doe harvest was followed by uh, an extremely severe winter in 1993, and... uh, those three factors, uh, two years of substantial doe harvest, followed by uh, a severe winter, really lowered the population. But even after the agency cut back on hunting, the population never rebounded. Now, there's only around 20,000. Freilich remembers some very angry hunters showing up at public meetings. Trucks wore bumper stickers that read, Save a deer, kill a wildlife biologist. It got ugly. But Freilich says back in 93, agencies didn't have the hard science to back their policies. Now they have 24 years' worth to help them answer some questions. What we need to understand is why these deer succumb uh, so severely in in some of these winters. We follow the Grays River deep into the backcountry and start hiking. Dwinell carries an antenna and receiver that beeps faster as we get closer to the doe. We do our best to tiptoe over the snow and fallen trees. Then we see the doe mosey by. They're very near. We're 40 meters from it right now. It's good when they walk away slow like that. It usually, they do that when they have a fawn, just try to be stealth and quiet and sneak away. Mom is trying to keep us from finding her fawns. We start looking anyway. 
But Dwinell says moseying isn't something this doe has done much of in the last couple of months. She migrates from, from her winter range um, outside of Labarge and Big Piney over the Wyoming range. All of the deer within this population, or almost all of them, make these incredible journeys over some pretty gnarly terrain. <laughs> Barbed wire fences, gas fields, subdivisions, this doe has seen it all. And after this winter, she's lucky to be alive, according to Kevin Monteith, the University of Wyoming wildlife biologist heading this study. Of the adult females that uh, were there at the beginning of winter, we've lost nearly 40% of them, uh, which is pretty striking to lose that many adult females. Normally, only about 15% die in winter. But Monteith says all this loss could be good news for survivors like this doe and her young. We now have many fewer mouths on that landscape to feed, so that's not necessarily what we want, but in turn what that means for each individual animal that remains is potentially more, better food available to each one of them. Game and Fish's Gary Freilich agrees there's benefits for science. He says it's an opportunity to learn something about how mule deer pull through. This population will in fact recover as they have done uh, for hundreds if not thousands of years. And because of the hard winter, the study has been funded for two more years. It takes us a while, but we eventually find the two fonts curled up under logs. Quickly, Dwinell and Freilich begin weighing and measuring them. I'm wanting to try to get blood on this one, but it's kicking a bunch and I don't know if I'll be successful. You chill. Just gonna hang tight with her if you don't mind. That's me she's talking to. I do my best to hold down a squirming, healthy fawn. The frustrated mom runs circles around us, huffing and stomping. The crew pulls radio collars over their tiny heads, takes photos, and then... Yeah, I think we're, we're ready to go. They release them? They let them go, and the fawns wobble off into the forest to hide again, camouflaged, instantly. If they survive disease and predators, in a few months, they'll still have a long walk into winter ahead of them. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Looks like we're good. Tourism is booming in Wyoming. Recreationists spent $5.6 billion in the state last year. And parks and historic sites are seeing more visitors each season. But more people means more trash. While the national park system has embarked on an ambitious project to keep waste out of the landfills, many state parks are still struggling to recycle. Wyoming Public Radio's Alana Elder reports. We just try to keep it nice the best we can around here because... It's amazing how people can trash out a place. 83-year-old Ralph Deckett has been volunteering at Kurt Gowdy State Park since the beginning of July. Now retired from the FBI, Deckett spends much of his time looking after museums and recreation sites like this one. And he's not alone. Driving around the park, Assistant Superintendent Daryl Richardson says Kurt Gowdy depends on volunteers like Deckett. Our volunteer program is one of the the biggest things we have going for us here. During the summer, Richardson says, Kurt Gowdy's campsites are full. The trails are well-trafficked, and for many people, disposables are part of the outdoor experience. 
Oh, it's, it's primarily paper. You know, people come camping and they're going to have paper and cardboard stuff. And then there's a lot of cans, you know, because they're canned foods and, and I'm sure plastic bottles because everybody's all into drinking bottled water anymore. Kurt Gowdy employs only two full-time staff and two part-time staff. About 20 volunteers and a few seasonal workers do the rest of the work picking up trash. To pay for that help, state parks use entrance fees and the general fund. Richardson says they do the best they can to recycle. We do a little bit of it. We just don't do a lot of it because it's just we don't have the receptacles for one thing, and then we don't. And we are park is so big and our trail system is so big. Richardson counts about 20 dumpsters spread across the park. Each week, he says, a private company empties these and dumps the waste in Cheyenne's landfill. Richardson says, sure, if there was a way to have recycling hauled away, he'd put bins around the park. But Kirk Gowdy is 30 miles from Cheyenne, and it's hard to take advantage of the city's services. You'd think recycling would be easy for a park in the middle of town. Right now, we are not recycling at all. Kevin Skates is superintendent of Wyoming's busiest state park in the middle of Thermopolis. Since the town has no recycling program, neither does the park. Meanwhile, Grand Teton National Park is trying to deliver their waste to the nearest town themselves, and they're trying to send less of it to the landfill. Sustainability coordinator Margaret Wilson says for a long time, Grand Teton was just like most state parks. They didn't have money or staff to devote to recycling. Then they joined the Zero Landfill Initiative, a pilot project to try and divert most of the waste generated inside national parks. Wilson says part of that is educating tourists. I think that that's where trying to reach people before they come and visit and let them try to pack accordingly, say bring refillable water bottles or maybe bring utensils. With support from Subaru and the National Park Foundation, Grand Teton could afford to hire a new recycling crew and place bins all over the park. Last year, they diverted a third of their waste through recycling, and Wilson says they made some discoveries about the makeup of their trash. I think the most surprising, at least for me, was the, that 50% of our waste is compostable. So the park, along with a few businesses in Jackson, started hauling food waste to an industrial composter in West Yellowstone, more than 75 miles away. Wilson says that'll change. Teton County plans to open up their own compost facility in 2020. Right now, the park's trash and recyclables go with Jackson's waste to Idaho. Wilson says in the last year, she's learned a lot about the park's waste system, and Grand Teton needed someone with the time to do that. Each park has to have a champion or someone who's overseeing the whole project. According to State Parks and Historic Sites Administrator Dominic Bravo, dedicating one staff member to the trash problem won't work for state parks. I mean, many of my state parks and historic sites may only have one employee, so they pretty much wear all of the hats for that one specific job. But there could be a solution for Kurt Gowdy after all. A company called Wyco is about to take over recycling in Cheyenne with plans to pick up trailers from all over Laramie County. I called them up and asked if they'd go as far as Kurt Gowdy, and they said they could. When I told Richardson about Wyco, he asked me for their phone number with hopes that eventually Kurt Gowdy could recycle more of their trash as their visitor numbers rise. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Alana Elder.
After a short break, we'll hear how a hot summer could help the coal industry and visit the natural trap cave before it's sealed up. That's all coming up on Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Republicans in Congress are considering changes to the Endangered Species Act, which Democrats and environmentalists say is misguided. Correspondent Matt Laszlo has the story from Washington on the effort. The Endangered Species Act has been the law of the land for more than 40 years. According to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service website, The act is intended to highlight the aesthetic, ecological, educational, recreational, and scientific value to our nation and its people. But Wyoming Senator John Barrasso says it needs updating. The Endangered Species Act was uh, written, created, and adopted for all the right reasons, and there's just too much sand in the gears right now. Barrasso says the act creates too many hoops and hurdles. We know that for every, you know, hundred species that have been added to the list, only three have recovered enough to get off. So we need, when something goes on the list, that there is a recovery plan in place, and we know how to measure success, and then when you get there, it comes off the list. Republicans on the House Natural Resources Committee have approved five bills to overhaul the Endangered Species Act. They range from forcing cost reviews to be a part of the listing process, to capping the fees attorneys can charge for taking up the cases. Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney says the effort is important. You know, the point has to be to get them off the list. So I think we need to look at you know, how we can empower the states more, for example, um, how we can make sure that there's an assessment of economic cost of the listing, what we can do to help limit litigation. Cheney also wants to stop mass listings, where numerous animals in a region are protected at once. We need to prevent um, groups from being able to request listings of sort of uh, a mass of species all at once. I think we need to talk about one species at a time. But Democrats say the GOP effort is too short-sighted. Here's New Mexico's Tom Udall. You know, the, the big discussion, if, we, if we're ever going to have a discussion, uh, has to include all the issues. And I, I don't ever see that happening. I see them normally tar- targeting something very, very narrow and wanting to change it. Udall says he hasn't seen the proposals yet, but as the train passed by us in the basement of the Capitol, he explained that for him to get on board with the effort, he wants more protections for species, land, and regions. Endangered species is about ecosystems and the health of ecosystems, and so you need to approach it in that way. So soon as they're willing to, to uh, sit down and really talk about how do we look at, at what's happened since the endangered species act passed and how do we uh, encourage and support healthy ecosystems, I'm happy to participate in the conversation. Montana Democratic Senator John Tester hasn't seen the GOP bills either, but says he's open to changes. Could it use modification? Sure. What what those things are right now, I can't tell you off the top of my head, but we certainly take a look at it. But, but if the idea is to roll it back so that it doesn't, uh, I just don't think that's a positive thing. Otherwise, it will become the endangered species. But Senator Barrasso says the current iteration of the Endangered Species Act is hampering communities and stifling their economies. We're now at a point where there are endangered species in 99% of the counties in the United States. So you have Republicans and Democrats who are looking at this and saying, gee, something is wrong here because of the impact of, uh, 
all of these new listings on uh, you know, jobs, on the economy, uh, and on the people in their communities. So we say we got you need to have a, a you need you need to modernize it and update it in a way that actually does the job of helping species recover. While the effort to overhaul the Endangered Species Act has broad GOP support in the House, it's unclear if it can garner the 60 votes necessary to pass the Senate. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. A changing climate may be bad PR for fossil fuels, but ironically, it could help their bottom line. Two major coal companies released earnings reports last week. They said higher temperatures across the country meant coal stockpiles were being eaten up. They're hoping for a long, hot summer, so that trend continues. Inside Energy's Madeline Beck explains. The higher the temperatures this summer, the higher the coal profits could go, or at least That's the hopeful message both Arch Coal and Cloud Peak Energy put out in their second quarter reports. Basically, coal companies expect that a warmer summer means we will all crank up the AC, which uses more electricity. About a third of the country's electricity comes from coal. In this report, Arch Coal said days in which we use air conditioning, called cooling degree days in industry jargon, are, quote, more than 2% above the five-year average, and coal inventories have been reduced dramatically. To find out what this all means, I walked through 80-degree heat through a well-sealed front door into the University of Wyoming's bright and chilly business building. Rob Godby was reading through Arch's earning reports. He's an energy economist at the University of Wyoming. Leverage its complementary lines of business to capitalize on. He explains that last year, natural gas was the big winner in the summer. Prices were weighed down last spring, and utilities bought up natural gas reserves. But they already had contracts to buy coal. And so companies were not burning their coal, but they were still receiving their coal, and their stockpiles went through the roof. Now, with gas prices a bit higher, utilities are turning to their coal piles. Warmer temperatures are good, especially if you're a power producer, and that'll cause gas prices to rise, and it'll cause demand for coal to go up. That's what you want. The other thing power producers and fossil fuel companies want, or at least could benefit from, extreme storms. Anytime you have hurricanes in the Gulf, that certainly affects the oil prices. Bruce Hinchy is president of the Petroleum Association of Wyoming. He says hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico could help oil companies far away from the Gulf, like those in Wyoming or Colorado, because Gulf companies won't be able to produce. Less fuels means higher prices. And then there's cyclones. One hit Australia back in April, hurting coal production there. Coal prices went up everywhere else. And remember the polar vortex? The polar vortex of 2014 uh, really drove a significant increase in demand for uh, home heating. Rick Kurtzinger of Cloud Peak Energy. Coal was able to provide home heating in an affordable, reliable way because it's able to be stored at power plants. Therefore, it was ready to be dispatched as the need arose. So heat, polar vortexes, cyclones, hurricanes, all drive demand for fuel. And of course, there's connection between all that demand and the weather itself. Paul Higgins is with the American Meteorological Society based in D.C. He's not in the game of long-term climate predictions, but he does link fossil fuel emissions to heat trapped in the atmosphere and more moisture in the air. So a warmer, moister atmosphere has 
some of the key ingredients in stronger storms. Getting back to the air-conditioned economist's office, Godby says overall weather volatility may be good for some industries in the short term, but there are too many unknowns about how it's going to play out for the country's energy systems. People tend to think of climate change as global warming. It's going to get warmer, but what they don't think about is the implications of volatility and how that really stresses existing systems. In that polar vortex, for instance, some coal couldn't be used because it was frozen solid. Other coal plants couldn't start up because they had been offline for so long. There are definitely unforeseen challenges to all these changes. All we do know is that, for the short term, coal and gas are going to beat the heat. For Inside Energy, I'm Madeline Beck. Thousands of years ago in northern Wyoming, countless animals fell to their death at the bottom of an 85-foot cave. Natural Trap Cave has long been closed to recreation, but scientists have spent the last four summers unearthing the remains of many now-extinct animals. As Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen reports, excavations will soon come to an end. Out here in the Bighorn Basin, it's windy, and the views in every direction stretch for miles. It's not exactly where you might expect to find a cave. That might be why so many animals, like the American cheetah and the short-faced bear, overlook the 15-by-20-foot opening and tumbled into Natural Trap Cave. Now the Bureau of Land Management has covered the hole with a metal grate to prevent falls in illegal fossil collection. Juan Layden is standing near the opening where he's putting on his harness and securing it to the safety rope. The morning ritual right away is getting... Get my rig on. Layden has been teaching researchers from Des Moines University how to safely descend and ascend using a rope system for the last four years. It's his job every morning of the excavation to unlock the heavy metal grate. This is the only working team of scientists with approval from the BLM to excavate the site and are some of the few people in the world who have had the chance to see the inside of the cave. Excavations of the cave have been done before by other universities, but not since the 1970s. The cave remained closed until Dr. Julie Meachin and her team were approved to re-enter in 2014. She says the cave wasn't necessarily off-limits during those years, but it was remote and expensive. You can't just walk down the road into the cave. You have to rappel in. You need a relatively large crew, and to do that, you need a lot of equipment. You need people who can train the crew. Uh, in the repelling techniques, and you need all sorts of support staff to do this. And Meechin's team could be the last people to step foot on the bottom of the cave. Unless they seek and secure more funding, after the summer, the cave will become off-limits. For now, they're packing up their gear for another day in the cave. Only one person can descend at a time, and when it's my turn, I can feel my heart pounding in my chest. After clipping into the safety rope, I walk down a ladder that's secured against a grassy ledge where Juan Layden is standing. Besides a few headlamps bobbing around below, it's impossible to see any other details through the darkness of the cave. Layden goes through his safety checklist and helps me adjust the rappel rack I'll use to control my speed as I descend. Now, which is your brake hand? 
my right. Yeah, put it on the bread crawl. As I repel, I get used to the feeling of dangling in the air, and my eyes begin to adjust. I can make out the cave's bell shape that expands into a much larger space. Once I reach the bottom, it's cool, about half the temperature that it was outside. And Dr. Julie Meachin says that's part of what makes Natural Trap Cave so unique. The cave is like a refrigerator. It's constantly cold. It's never above 42 degrees Fahrenheit. The low temperature, paired with the cave's 98% humidity, is ideal for preserving genetic material. Meachin says the specimen quality varies. The ones that are right underneath the cave's opening are not as intact because of precipitation. The ones that are more peripheral um, have much better preservation, and we've got original collagen still left in the bones. So they're technically subfossils. They're not completely fossils. Um, so we have basically subfossils of animals that were alive 30,000 years ago. The main question they're interested in is twofold. How did the climate and habitat change from the late Pleistocene to the early Holocene? And how did animals respond to that change? Meachin says she's especially interested in the fossils of species that survived the extinction events of the Pleistocene. Coyotes. We also have some wolves. We have some pronghorn antelope. We have uh, bighorn sheep. We have bison. So these are all animals that we think of today, but are they the same in the Ice Age or the Pleistocene as they are now? They won't be able to completely answer this question until they can look at the fossil's genetics. Certain animals may have been able to adapt to the changing climate. If so, Meachin says they could develop a deeper understanding of the relationship between climate and environmental shifts. Although that wasn't one of the goals of this project, it might be a consequence of this project. So that would be really great. Meechan says she's thankful for the last four years. All of the things you have to do, all the data collection and all the minutiae you have to do gets really, you know, it's tiresome. But then somebody finds something really great and it makes it all worth it. Even if they're the last team to descend into Natural Trap Cave, there's the potential to continue learning from the fossils they've gathered. Over a thousand of the specimen collected by Meachin's team will soon be stored at the University of Wyoming, where the public will get the chance to see them for themselves. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. To wrap up, we'll hear how Jackson plans to deal with the crowds of the Eclipse tourists. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Many Wyoming communities are expecting a surge in visitors in the days surrounding the August 21st eclipse. But Jackson officials say if the weather holds, it could be anywhere between 50,000 and 80,000 extra people visiting the area. Jackson is always packed on that date, but the potential increase in visitors has led to months of planning and the hiring of a coordinator to make sure Jackson Hole can get through the event. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck has more. Summer is where merchants make their money in downtown Jackson. John Frechette sits outside one of his stores called Made, which figures to do very well around Eclipse time. They are offering a range of Eclipse-themed inventory, and he's excited. I think it's a rare event. It's fun that it comes right over Jackson. You know, 
the excitement that surrounds it from people who are coming from all over the world to see it here is pretty cool. Yeah, I think it'll be busy in the store. I hope it's not too busy, but I, it'll be fun to see how the whole thing plays out, I think. Other merchants are also offering Eclipse-related items, and the local Snake River Brewery even has a special beer. The chairman of the Jackson Hole Chamber of Commerce, Tim Harlan, dismisses concerns that the community will become overrun with tourists, saying that Jackson businesses deal with lots of people all the time. The Eclipse is going to be a much added benefit and it's going to be something new, unique and novel to the community. Jackson officials are taking the eclipse very seriously. In February, they hired Catherine Brackenridge to be the area's total solar eclipse specialist. She's been trying to get the community to be prepared for the challenges of getting around Jackson and to prepare for shortages at such things as grocery stores. She's worked on educating the public, too. I've been saying it's an event for the universe, so we need to be welcoming, um, but we also want people to be prepared and to to be well-informed travelers so that they help in mitigating any of the impact that we're anticipating. The Jackson officials are preparing for those who might miss that message. One of the constant summer challenges in Jackson is traffic. There are few roads and lots of people. This is 10 in the morning and it's already getting busy. Add another 50,000 or so to the mix, and you can see where getting around might be tough. Emergency Management Coordinator Rich Oak says they plan to strategically place law enforcement in areas where they can more easily respond to emergencies. And St. John's Medical Center spokeswoman Karen Conley says they will have medical providers available around the community and have contracted for the use of helicopters to fly people to the hospital. In this particular instance, we are counting on congested roadways and we'll have helicopters available nearby. But I think helicopters and preparedness around transporting in a different way than we're accustomed to is key to our preparedness. She says they will also have the hospital overstaffed in case of emergencies. Down the street at Grand Teton National Park, spokeswoman Denise German is expecting the busiest day in park history. We have requested extra staff uh, from other national park units across the country. We are also having an all-hands-on-deck. So the, the days leading up to, the day of, and a, maybe a day after, basically everybody will be focused on Eclipse. They've also set up viewing areas near Kelly and other areas to minimize overcrowding. The hope is now that locals and tourists alike will be able to relax and enjoy the show. But sitting in a chair at the clip joint at the Snow King Resort, Moita Cisco has a different view. I mean, it, it could be very, very overwhelming, I think. A traffic jam that doesn't move, uh, gas pumps that are empty. You're not as confident that they have this all figured out. No, I think, that, I think they have it as figured out as they can, but... Uh, we only have so much manpower. In fact, most of the people at the clip joint are worried. One person noted that in February, a windstorm caused a nearby power outage that wreaked havoc that authorities could barely handle. And stylist Michelle Allen says the whole event scares her. Well, I mean, this could be like Y2K. I mean, the whole world kept turning and life went on. But, or else it could be a disaster. I don't know. I'm 50-50 on it. Emergency Management Coordinator Rich Oaks thinks they have most things covered, but there is one nagging concern. 
they are expecting a lot of people leading up to the event. But Oaks wonders if the visitors from other parts of Wyoming will eventually make their way to Jackson, keeping the influx of people running for several days. We may need to extend things, and that's what we're a little concerned about, and that's going to be tough uh, because we're already going to have folks working 12, 14-hour shifts, and it's going to be tough to retain those mutual aid resources from other jurisdictions for that long because they eventually have to go home to their regular jobs too. So, While some may be concerned about the influx of people, most are at least looking forward to the eclipse. Oak says he's looking forward to it being over. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming author C.J. Box recently published his 23rd novel, Paradise Valley. It was also his fifth standalone book outside of the Joe Pickett series. Box spoke with Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard about his career and said he has honed his voice as an author over the years, in part by following Elmore Leonard's 10 Rules of Writing. And the very first rule is leave out the parts readers skip. And it sounds kind of trite, but it's absolutely true. And so I try to just kind of pare the stories down to their their essence and go with that and not have pages of pages of exposition and description and and kind of superfluous things and try to try to just move it along. And I think that that's kind of my style and voice. And I think that's that's proved out over the years. You are certainly one of the most prolific Wyoming writers, you know, maybe ever. Did you see that coming? No, I didn't. Um, Because, of course, starting out, I was just trying to get one book published. But I think I kind of attribute some of it to, I've got a journalism background. I used to, you know, write newspaper columns in Wyoming. I worked for the Saratoga Sun newspaper and others. And I think when you're a journalist, you kind of just get trained to produce and produce on deadline and work every day. And I think that's carried over so that it never seems overwhelming at all. I just go to work every day like everyone else. And um, luckily that that kind of production has resulted in about a book and a half a year. And um, this year there'll be two books coming out, but that doesn't mean they're both written this year. They were written last year or finished last year, I should say. Um, so that's it's it's not as difficult as it might seem. Do you think that journalism background helps you convey the facts of a story? You know, with a crime novel, there's certainly a lot of those things that have to be tied in and making it compelling as well. I think so. And also, I do a lot of research with each book, and um, that means interviews. And I kind of go back on my, my old experience, and I've got notebooks. You know, I've got lots of notebooks filled with with interviews of people, experts, people on the ground, so that when I when I write the books, because they all they're all kind of topic driven, more so than character driven, I can really rely on um, real research to help me through. And I think it makes the books more realistic, and it certainly helps me get my head into certain areas where I can write from a, you know a, a point of view that comes across as authentic. With so many books, how do you keep being creative and coming up with these new storylines? I don't find the creative part the hardest. What I find probably the most difficult thing is just finding the time. I'm doing a lot more traveling than I should be doing and doing a lot more book tours than I should be doing. And that takes me away from writing. So 
Um, really the most difficult part of it these days is just making sure that I have uninterrupted blocks of time to write as opposed to trying to figure out what's going to come next. Do you see crime writing as your home, or do you ever think that you might venture out of that genre? I don't, you know, I don't really think about it as crime writing. Um, I think I'm writing contemporary Western novels um, that I hope are compelling and try not to, to fit them into any particular genre, whether it's mystery or thriller or crime or whatever. Um, but I, I like, I like the formula or the strategy because it's a way of writing about a community or, um, people, um, or, you know, it's kind of sociological because the investigation, uh, reveals a lot about a place. And that's, that's kind of more my aim than, than, uh, trying to fit a genre. I have to ask, you certainly have a lot of diehard fans, What's the strangest encounter you've ever had with a fan of, of your novels? Oh, geez, there's been a lot. I think, well, not maybe a strange, but I thought one of the funniest was I, I, I flew up to Helena, Montana to do um, some ride-alongs with the, the deputy sheriffs there when I was researching um, Back of Beyond, actually. And the first thing they did when I got off the plane is they took me to the shooting range, um, the departmental shooting range, because they wanted to teach me how to shoot. And, you know, I had to explain to them, you know, I can shoot. I can, I'm, I'm not a bad shot, but it's Joe Pickett. who's not a very good shot. It's not me. And so sometimes I'm kind of, uh, people assume that I'm Joe Pickett or vice versa. And that's not the case. And they'll ask me questions or address me as Joe. Um, and that's happened quite a lot. So it's just, it, it, it does always amaze me how seriously or how much, People appreciate the books and assume that they know the characters, and sometimes they do better than I do. And one of the things I always wondered when I started out was whether or not um, readers in Wyoming would embrace a, a Wyoming author the way they kind of do in the South with their Southern authors. And I found that to be absolutely true. Um, it's amazed me how many, how many people in a small state like this read and how many have read every book. And it's really satisfying um, to find out what a, you know, reading state that we've got. C.J. Box is the author of the Joe Pickett series and the new novel, Paradise Valley. Thanks so much, C.J., for your time today. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Open Spaces. If you missed any part of it or want to hear one of our stories again, you can find them at our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. There you can also explore old shows, suggest stories for future programs, and find links to our podcast that's available on iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to visit us on Facebook, and all of our reporters can be found on Twitter. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.